This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to the minefield once more. Try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Every now and again a topic comes along that has been urging us to do a show on it for months and we've just always seemed not to be able to do it because of events conspiring and other urgent things forcing themselves upon us. This is one such show. It's a really, really important one, I think, Um, and we've finally found our way to doing it. Maybe that says something about us rather than the topic. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hi, Scott. Hello, Waleed. I'm always grateful for those moments of kind of human admission right at the outset <laughs> of the show. I do, I do hope you know that people who tune in regularly or have downloaded our show regularly, I hope they know that there aren't many weeks where the two of us don't feel a tremendous moral burden in the topics that we serve up. You know, so sometimes we try to be light and we always try to make things accessible and we always try to make things interesting and maybe dialogically unpredictable. But I can't think of a single topic where we've said, hey, let's just do that for the hell of it. No. Um, and I think this, this week, I mean, you, you know I've been pestering you about it for ages. And you're right, events seem to have conspired. Um, but the situation in Myanmar to our north has been uh, spiraling. Um, it's up to you if you want to describe it as an upward or a downward spiral. In terms of the intensity of violence, it certainly has been upward. In terms of the political and moral condition of the country, it most certainly has been downward. Uh, But for anyone who's been paying any attention whatsoever, on the 1st of February of this year, Myanmar's military, military, uh, after, you know, using a strategy that um, is by now familiar to us, uh, began claiming uh, voter fraud after the results of last year's November national elections, which saw uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's National League of Democracy uh, party, the ruling party, uh, returned with a massive parliamentary majority. Um, The military almost immediately began seeding doubt as to the legitimacy of the veracity of that result when those seeds of doubt didn't manage to sprout, (laughs) didn't manage to take root. Uh, then warnings were made in discrete circles and then far more publicly. And then finally, on the 1st of February, the day that the new parliament was supposed to sit, uh, the military called a one-year state of emergency. Well, we've been talking a bit about state of emergencies lately. Actually, yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is is a bad one, though. Um, I'm not sure, and hopefully our guest, who we're going to bring in very, very soon, hopefully he can maybe tell us, I'm not sure what the military thought was going to happen next. There is, of course, a kind of arrogance that contempt for the public engenders, the feeling that the public really is with me and that we really are united against a common enemy. That usually is the predicate of any kind of state of emergency. It's the identification of an enemy in common and therefore a rallying cry for those who are the real majority to come together and to reassert control, to vanquish the enemy and to try to bring order back to the life of the nation. In Myanmar, uh, something very, very different happened. Immediately, the nation was uh, thrown into wave upon wave upon wave of pro-democratic protest, Uh, some of them taking the form of kind of unruly 
rabble-rousing protests on the street, banging pots and pans, uh, the chanting or shouting of um, defiant slogans, uh, massive, uh, very, very diverse gatherings, uh, pro-democratic uh, um, gatherings, right through to one of the most impressively organized civil disobedience campaigns we've seen for a long, long time, uh, beginning with healthcare professionals in the country, which, again, if you think about it, under the conditions of a pandemic, for health professionals to take their moral souls in their hands and to uh, find ways of refusing to participate while also honoring their moral obligations as health healthcare profession, professionals. I mean, that's been, that's been really something to see. And on ABC Religion Ethics, I've published a number of pieces by uh, healthcare professionals from Myanmar about the agony, uh, the soul agony that they went through in trying to arrive at that precise decision. But I think what's been really troubling to watch, Walid, is the spiral of violence that has then ensued. Because as soon as the military discovered that there was going to be no acquiescent public, that the majority weren't simply going to rally to their side, then what has then followed is an extraordinary series of measures to crush that opposition in an effort to try to consolidate its power and to restore order to the nation. I mean, some of these measures uh, include terror, official state torture, forms of public killing, uh, the humiliation of protesters uh, after being beaten, making them crawl on the ground like dogs, uh, fairly grotesque displays of public violence. Um, one of the things I really want to talk <laughs> uh, to our guest about is what's the point of doing this? If this is to some extent an effort to try to gain legitimacy. Why on earth would you do this to your own public? There's something about this isn't, that I don't isn't understand. Isn't that an inevitable feature of revolutionary violence, though? Well, well, I, I mean, it's it, it may be a form of state violence. But, but it's I still guess... revolutionary in the sense that it's overturned. Like, so, okay, I yes, see what okay. you're saying. The, the military is the state, etc. But it's also fighting against the state. So it's it begins with wanting to overturn the established order and the election result. And when the public doesn't go your way, don't we over and over and over again in that sort of revolutionary violence see this pattern of behaviour that you can't persuade people in that context. You have to intimidate them into acquiescence. I mean, we saw, we saw it in the French Revolution. Yes. It's, like, I, I, it, it's just... Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm interested in your bewilderment because there must be a reason for that bewilderment that I'm not seeing. Yeah, well, we see, I mean, take the French Revolution... This is taking us a little bit far afield. I don't want to get too far afield. But if you take the French Revolution, one of the fascinating aspects of it is that the terror into which the revolution descended was predicated on the insistence on the part of the revolutionaries themselves that there was a widespread, quote unquote, democratic or counter-revolutionary conspiracy at foot among the elite who are trying to then gain the ear of the people and mm. turn the people against the true representatives of the people. Uh, in, in other words, revolutionary terror, in order to consolidate its grip on power, had to resort on a very, very, very old strategy, which is to claim conspiracy, to then 
array the mechanisms of violence against the conspirators in the name of the real people, the people who truly do stand for the democratic majority. That only happens then when a particular agent uh, um, elevates themselves to the position of the true representative of the people who is then able to act in extrajudicial, uh, anti or supra-legal and overtly violent ways in order to bring about something like a stable order. I guess my, my, my issue, Walid, is that on what basis, I mean, is it a legal basis? Is the military in Myanmar doing what it's doing? How can you scapegoat a particular people as being not belonging to the true identity, the true ethnic life of the nation? How can you scapegoat a particular people when those who are pushing back against the legitimacy or the illegitimacy of the military seizure of power, uh, when, when the forms of violence that are being enacted seem to be so indiscriminate and directed at so many civilians? How can you then try to establish your, your legitimacy by beginning to take aim at the very fabric of civil society and certain trusted civic institutions. Because it's something... the only option left, right? It's, the, yeah. It's intimidation. That's all that you have. You're not looking for a legitimate basis of power at that point in any kind of abstract civic sense, are you? You're looking at a pragmatic calculation that says this is the only way that we can retain power. Quite Quite possibly, but is it then justified on pragmatic grounds? Well, no. Or I mean, I didn't think we were in the realm of discussing whether or not the, the military's moves here are justified. <laughs> I mean, no, that, no, no, no. Sorry, sorry, Lee. I'm not, I'm not talking about whether it's justified. I'm saying that surely violence has to be accompanied by a form of political communication, right? There needs to be the justification. Well, no, no, sometimes that's given violence for that violence. No, sometimes violence is the political communication. Okay, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And that's that's all I think that's happening here, right? Is you need heads on spikes. That that says more than anything else you need to say. Okay, okay. And look, I I don't fundamentally disagree with that, but I'm not sure it goes all the way. So, so here's what's my next there? question. What's the bit that you're looking for? Okay, well here's just just so we can bring in our guest. Here's here's sure. my next puzzlement, and all I'm uh, I just need to confess my sort of puzzlement here. The the, <laughs> yeah. the questions that have been plaguing me. What began? as a form of anti-military, pro-democracy protest and seemed to me at its initial stages to live up to the highest standards of civil disobedience. Um, in other words, broad-based, wide-ranging coalitions ranging from vocations to persons on the street encompassing a kind of ethnic plurality of voices and groups all committed to forms of nonviolent resistance in the hopes of slowly, steadily undermining the legitimacy of the military junta. That has now given ground or given way to eruptions of what I think probably are rightly called forms of revolutionary violence. In other words, anti-military violence uh, on the part of civilians. Um, this yeah. I'm, I'm surprised by your nomenclature. I don't, I don't know why you refuse to see the military's behavior as revolution. Military revolutions are not a new thing. Well, that presumes, though, that the military ever weren't 
in power or weren't in power in Myanmar in some substantive way, which of course they were. Yeah, okay. okay and that the, yeah, and yeah. that the arrangement that they had with Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD, I mean, this was a power sharing arrangement. And it's as their hold of and their security within Myanmar's current political settlement began to diminish and wane that they simply reasserted uh, a kind of majority share, a majority stake. Yeah, that's still revolting. In that political settlement. Of course it's revolting. My God, I'm not not disputing that. It's a form of revolting. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Anyway, this is a sidebar. Go on, what were you saying? The question is, is that form then of countervailing violence? Was that inevitable? Is there something about the civic, political, national fabric of Myanmar that made a descent into countervailing violence, both inevitable and maybe necessary in order for there to be a return to something like functioning democracy? I guess my final question then is, can politics by which I mean something like not simply ethno-nationalism, but with a necessary degree of ethnic pluralism, with broad-based coalitions of interests, with a healthy, functioning, critical civic society. Can politics return after a cycle of violence, whether it be the initial military coup or the current forms of anti-military violence that have taken the place of civic disobedience? I'm. I mean, this. I'm not. I'm not necessarily asking whether the counter-military violence is justified. I'm not there. I would. I have no idea what I would do in that sort of situation. I don't want to be so arrogant as to say that no, no, they really should be simply relying on nonviolent means. I guess my problem or my question is, what forms of politics can be produced out of the cauldron? of military and counter-military violence. That's the thing, I guess, that challenges yeah. me, worries me. Over what especially time given is my question. Because, yeah. I mean, that you can imagine what you like, but it would be a, a very long path to get there. True. And then when you have the experience of a particularly vulnerable ethnic minority, thinking specifically here of the Rohingya Muslims, mm. uh, who have been particular victims, not just of military violence, but of also a kind of widespread approbation of forms of ethno-nationalism in Myanmar. Well, indeed, uh, at the hands of the democratic government that the military is now fighting. That's exactly right. right. This this is the unity ticket between between the military and Aung San Suu Kyi. Is the persecution and exclusion of the Rohingya. So, so, so when we talk about time frames, that time frame isn't the kind of patient time frame that's necessary for any healthy democracy to emerge and to find a degree of pluralistic peace. Uh, that time frame could itself be filled with other forms of exculpatory uh, violence. Anyway, I, I'm sorry. I've, are you I, just just quickly? I know we want to get to our guest, but are you suggesting that there might be something out of this current episode of violence and revolution that somehow reintegrates the Rohingya population into the country when they weren't before? Um, there have been, and, and look, I'm, I'm relying here on writing from our guest as well as from other specialists, uh, persons both in and outside of Myanmar who have written for me 
who have spoken and written quite movingly about the way that the current bout of violence has generated, has sparked, has possibly created the conditions in which there could be a reconsideration of the place of the Rohingya uh, within Myanmar's national life. There have been expressions of public apology uh, and forms of solidarity with the Rohingya, but probably solidarity that maybe, I'm not sure how much deeper they go than the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm. I guess my, my, so, so there have been uh, heartening forms of reconsideration, of recognition of this ethnic minority. Um, I guess my concern is historically, ethno-nationalism and renewed ethno-nationalist pride and sentiment has often accompanied various forms of revolutionary violence, precisely because a political community is forced to think seriously, deliberately, consecutively about what it is that defines a nation. And the easiest way to define a nation mm. is to define it along ethno-nationalist lines. Yeah, that's the whole Westphalian so, idea. Exactly, exactly right. Mm. I, I'm very interested in this idea, though, that this violence might be productive of something somehow. I don't... Anyway, so I think we've agreed that part of the issue is that a lot of this will live in the particularities... Yes. And we've also agreed that we don't have sufficient grasp of those particularities to take the conversation much further. So we need a guest basically to take it. We could probably leave now and just hand over to the guest. <laughs> um, we won't do that because I think it says in our contract somewhere that we can't, but um, oh, that really? was probably a better way of doing it. Anyway, you're listening to The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, but you could also listen to the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Our guest, and it's a particular honour to have him on the show, Nick Cheeseman, is a fellow in the Department of Political and Social Change at Australian National University. He's the author of Opposing the Rule of Law, How Myanmar's Courts Make Law and Order, and he's the author of a forthcoming book from Cambridge University Press called Myanmar, A Political Lexicon. He's also the author of a trilogy of astonishingly insightful and morally important pieces on the developing, declining, problematic situation in Myanmar, which I'll include uh, links to on the website. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Uh, Scott Wally, thank you very much for having me on, and I'm glad that you are going to stay in the room because I work better in conversation. Okay. <laughs> well, well, look, Nick, you've, you've heard that I probably have more questions and concerns and I'm really hoping that you have answers, uh, or at least insights. So, look, let's just begin with where a good deal of our conversation began, which is on what basis, or is there a basis, on which the military, how do we want to refer to it, seized power, resumed power, reasserted the power that it already had over Myanmar's political and national life? And on what basis does the military justify or be seen to be justifying its acts of extraordinary violence against its own population. Yeah, thanks for that. I think at the outset, if you don't mind, I'd like to try and distinguish between a couple of ideas that you were working with in the opening there and 
I wasn't entirely satisfied with, with how you were playing with them. So I think if we try and okay, differentiate good. them, we'll, we'll get a bit further along. One is this relationship between um, revolutionary violence and the current movement to transform political conditions in Myanmar. And the other is the condition of state terror, which is the condition that's been brought about by the military, again, resuming full control of the state apparatus since February. So I think if we work through those first and then we turn to questions of justification, I, I think we can do um, a bit more work to, to get ourselves to a point where we can talk about what it means to try and justify one type of violence or another. Let me begin with state terror. I think in its characteristics, in its empirical characteristics in Myanmar, what we see presently is um, public killing, extra lethal violence, which is to say the use of bodies of dead people being put on display to terrorize the population, um, abduction in the form of the midnight knock and otherwise, and torture. Uh, all of these forms of violence, I've argued, are constitutive of how the military works in Myanmar, and uh, that is to say what it is. And this is a way of thinking about violence and its relationship to the military in Myanmar, which is, uh, pushes back a little bit against the idea of the instrumentality of violence, which isn't to say that there is not an instrumentality, but rather that this is rather a, a, a type of violence that's constitutive of what the military is as well as how it goes about its work. And I think it's an inherently anti-political violence. That's not just to say that all violence uh, is not political in as much as there has to be a relationship between means and ends in order to speak of politics at all and to attend to those ends in order to make violence meaningful politically, but rather it's anti-political insofar as it's concerned with silencing, with stealing, with closing down the possibility, any possibility for debate, for public action, for engagement of a sort that we would think about um, as political. That's to say to produce a condition in the language of the Myanmar military of law and order. And we, we do need to contrast this with what I think is rightly referred to as, the, as revolutionary violence that we're seeing currently in particular in the streets and the, of uh, towns and cities around Myanmar, that violence which is occurring because people who were initially involved in those protests that you outlined at the outset of the program, Scott, then went to uh, the mountains, went to frontier areas, received training and a certain amount of equipment from uh, the armed groups that occupy those frontier areas and came back to the cities to participate in a program of targeted killing of low-level government officials, of police, through shootings, uh, bombings of government facilities, arson attacks, um, a kind of violence which really is new to conditions in Myanmar, a country that's seen, of course, civil wars, frontier wars for many, many decades. But in this, I think we encounter a moment which is unlike anything that's come before. Now, what makes this violence different from the state terroristic violence that I was referring to a moment ago? Specifically, it is uh, an, a, a type of violence that can be justified in relation to its ends. That's to say it anticipates a politics to come. It invokes or recalls as well uh, a politics of the past, which is to say the power of numbers on the streets in opposition to the military takeover that you referred to, Scott. So it has a kind of a sense of the past and future of politics that makes um, the 
possibility of justification, something that's really genuinely worth talking about in a way that I think is altogether absent from the state terror that I was referring to a moment ago. It's, it's a revolutionary violence that's made meaningful by way of reference to what it aims to do, which is to say, open up the possibility for conditions of freedom. Mm. So, Nick, it's, Nick, it, why, it's why, teleological. It's teleological violence. Right, but on that, Nick, why wouldn't you just say they both have their telos? It's yeah, just exactly. that one telos, exactly. they're, they're different teloi, and you prefer one to the other. Why would you say that, that one doesn't have a telos at all? Yes, because the, the state terror that the military has enacted since the beginning of February, or certainly since the uh, large-scale protests in February and then into March, which is precisely uh, consistent with the state terror of previous decades, to push back Walid against your, what you were suggesting, that we might think of this in any way as revolutionary. There's nothing revolutionary about this program. It's the reinstitution, the reinscribing of a program of military domination of the state, which has characterized state practice and the identity of the state in Myanmar for many decades. That violence is, that state terror is empty of uh, contents which can be identified in any way as referring to, as justifying um, a political outcome. There are no political aims, goals or objectives that follow from that. It's rather a condition that is, right? It's a statement that the military exclusively is in the position to be able to determine the current and future conditions of the country, to silence and still to close down the possibility of political life in the country altogether. That's what makes it inherently anti-political. And also that means, as I said already, not that it is not instrumental, but rather also that it is constitutive of the, the military state itself. This is, I think, an important point, which, again, I, I want to stress makes it fundamentally different from the revolutionary violence that we've seen in response to the coup. And I think there's a major difficulty in thinking through what's going on in Myanmar. Even scholars who follow Myanmar closely, some of them have said, well, um, aren't these both types of terroristic violence? I, I think that's completely to misapprehend the differences they've been referring to, to flatten out the violence, to, to deny the political potentialities of revolutionary violence that are absent from the condition of state terror, which is one in which uh, violence overwhelms any other possibility of thinking or talking in ways that are, after all, political. So I think of politics as really being about the distribution of power and contests over that. And so for that reason, I'm just struggling to get my head around how the military's conduct here isn't political because it seems it's rawly political in that it seems to be about nothing more than the distribution of power, namely the concentration of power in its own hands. So what have I got, what conception of politics are you using here that I'm not, that explains why I'm confused? My conception of politics is an ability to speak and act in concert with others. And it's exactly that condition that state terror prohibits. It is in, intends to prohibit, closes off. Hence, to go to some of the conundrums that you were addressing at the outset of the conversation, the necessity, um, perhaps that's not the right term, but the closing off of other options for political action and therefore the resort to violence as the only alternative remaining for those who would pursue revolutionary goals. Right, okay. Yeah, I think that's a helpful conception. Yeah. Mm. Can I just, can I ask though, Again, Nick, I mean, so much of what you're saying resonates deeply with me, and I, I can't help but think about Hannah Arendt's, for instance, association 
of politics with the plurality of voices and with tyranny or despotism as being precisely that which produces a, a, a situation of silence and acquiescence. So I'm, I'm, with, you, I'm with you entirely there. Uh, also, the, the, your way of talking about military violence as being constitutive, in other words, the means and the ends are folded over into the same act. It's not as though the means are being employed in order to achieve certain ends, but the Good. ends are already already present in the very means employed. That all makes complete sense to me. I guess I'm, I'm trying to understand here, and again, I might be using the wrong categories entirely, but for political actors, and, and here I'm, I'm not meaning politics in the Arendtian sense, but probably more in Walid's sense, those who wield power, those who maybe have the monopoly on the authorized use of violence. So political actors, in order to act, need to at least give the appearance or need to make the pretension that they are acting on behalf of some, how, how do we want to describe it? A majority of persons, uh, a particular group of people who are the real stakeholders of the nation, the national identity as such, and for political actors to act and to be accorded a degree of legitimacy, they need to be able to then receive the approbation of those who recognize that these people are acting, these agents are acting in their name. I guess I'm, I'm having a really hard time imagining that the, I'm, I'm not trying to justify you understand, but I'm having a hard time imagining that Myanmar's military are simple tyrants, are pure despots acting not in the name of any people or any national ideal or form of national identity, they, they must be appealing to a group. They must be appealing to a majority, to an ethnic group. I, I don't know what, but they must be appealing to something or some, some principle upon which their action is being justified. And in turn, those who are being trained in revolutionary or guerrilla urban violence, are they receiving, in turn, the approbation of those who up to this point have been relying on nonviolent civil disobedience. So I, I, I guess what, what I'm wondering is the agents of violence on both sides. Again, there's no attempted yeah. equivalence here, but there must be an appeal to some principle beneath them both, some right. majority yeah. in, in whose name they are acting. Can you help alleviate my confusion here? Yeah, so let me try and do that, but push back against that. I think okay, you're, you're still working from assumptions, which I want to challenge. At the outset of the episode, you suggested that the military and taking power would expect that some groups would or some um, as yet identified part of the populace rallied to their sides. That was the, the term that you used. Yeah. And I, I simply don't see that that's the case, that there's any expectation of that from the outset at all. The expectation from the outset is that people remain acquiescent by being still, by being inert, by being inactive. Now, Lisa Wuddin, doing work on Syria, has, um, and over a couple of books, done an outstanding job of exploring exactly the dimensions of these relations that we're trying to get at. And she wrote in, in an early book that she studied, that, that she wrote before the civil war in Syria, that the condition that the regime there wanted to impose was a condition of acting as if 
it's not attempting to create conditions in which it expects to obtain a kind of Weberian legitimacy in its relation with the populace. Rather, it obtains a kind of compliance by having people act as if they are supportive of the regime. Subsequently, with the Civil War, she's written another book where she develops this point and, and, and pushes back a little bit against some of the work she did in the previous book. But the emphasis here is that uh, to go to these conditions of endemic violence that we see in Myanmar presently and that were much more extensive in Syria, that uh, again, what the regime is working towards in that situation is not a situation in which it obtains the support of the populace, but rather that people withdraw, that there is a withdrawal of judgment about who is right or who is wrong and whether or not I, as a citizen, ought to become involved. That is the success of the regime. It's not in obtaining any relationship which is sort of politically substantive, but rather in getting people to withdraw their judgment. And I think that that's the condition that the military in Myanmar works towards as well. Let me just illustrate uh, with one small point and then I will pause. When uh, in Burmese, there are two different terms that you could use for having a meeting with people. You can say that you meet in the sense of Dwezon Bue, or you could say Dwezon Swainwe Bue. Dwezon Bue is exactly what the military regime does, and indeed what its signed um, in meeting sessions announce to people who attend them. And that is to say that Dwezon is just to observe one another, it is to come face to face with another. Dwezon Swainwe Bue. The critical point here is that Swainway is to be in dialogue with another. So it's this condition of the removal of dialogue, to be seen but not heard, to be present but not to have the right to speak. That is the condition that the military uh, in Myanmar has over, uh, repeatedly over the decades worked towards, and that is the condition that state terror is designed to induce, which is why this sort of revolutionary violence is so interesting and important in the current moment, because it is exactly a form of violence that rebuts this position by the military, as I said already, that insists on the possibility of opening up conditions for freedom, uh, freedom from state terror and freedom to imagine some other way of living together uh, than uh, people have done in the past and certainly can do in the present. And I'm not being at all starry-eyed about this, but I do think that this is a genuinely novel moment and that it's critical that we make a distinction between that type of violence and the state terror that we see in Myanmar since February much clear. Nick, are you saying that the forms of what you described before as extra lethal violence, the posing of bodies, the desecration of corpses on top of the abject humiliation that's been inflicted on certain citizens, that these are forms of, of overt political communication? In other words, the, what's being held up to the people is the image ideal of what the military expects the people to be, namely things, not uh, political actors or persons well, in common. Subjects rather than interlocutors. Subjects, yeah. yes. It's not political uh, communication, though. No. It is anti-political. That's the point. Again, I want okay, to stress yes, yes. That, this, that this military has over decades evacuated institutions that are formally recognized as political institutions of politics. That's precisely the condition that it is opposed to. So what you refer to, um, the, the dragging around the place of bodies, the leaving of bodies in streets, um, the, the, sometimes bodies of people who are maimed, who are not yet dead, uh, this, these are all techniques to 
to induce this condition in which people will withdraw from any type of participation in political action against mm. military dictatorship. They are anti-political mm. practices. The, the message is shut up, leave it to us, comply. In short. Yeah. Mm. Wow. It makes me think a bit of the way a lot of Middle Eastern regimes have worked mm. since their respective revolutions, right? So rolling through the 20th century, the middle of the 20th century and so on. You know, if you think you're political, we'll throw you in prison until you're not. And um, there are kind of moments of an attachment to a particular ideology. It might have been a sort of socialist program or something like that, a kind of um, nationalist manufacturing base or, or whatever. But by and large, the tenor of politics has been, it doesn't concern you as people. Let me just come in on that last point because it's interesting to note that indeed in the 1960s and 70s, the military dictatorship in that period did go about developing a formal uh, socialist ideology, which, as you said, was concerned uh, there as, as in other countries in that period in the redistribution of resources in creating a, a socialist workers' economy. And so we see in that time still, let's say, some attempt at formalizing military control by attending to indeed some conditions that for for the good life, right? That there was some sense of a teleology associated with the program of a military dictatorship and then the transition as it were to a one-party state in the 1970s and early 1980s. But that has been absent since the late 1980s with the restoration of direct, unmediated military dictatorship from that time through to 2010. What's characteristic of this period is really the, is that there is no formal ideological project whatsoever. And so in certain respects, we see the reinstitution of those arrangements in the current period, although there are some important differences that arise both out of changed um, social and economic conditions in Myanmar, as well as because of um, the, the changed the, to some extent, the change program that the military itself has in, in taking control. Um, you're in particular still at insistence that it's working within the terms of the 2008 constitution, which was not a characteristic of previous military dictatorships. Um, they ignored constitutions rather than referred to them. Mm -hmm. If you just joined us, you're listening to The Minefield. Well, Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. The voice you were just hearing was Nick Cheesemans. He's a fellow in the Department of Political and Social Change at the Australian National University. Nick, I, um, good heavens. I mean, the, the vision or the description of violence, of anti-political violence uh, that you've given us is, is both terrifying and helpful. I'm just wondering, though, there are other forms of violence to which this particular, and I guess when you say political, and when I think of Hannah Arendt, I think of political as recognizing the plurality of human beings and human groups. So to say that violence is anti-plural or anti-pluralistic, or if you like a strike at or an assault at the diversity of the peoples of the world as such, in other words, genocide, the, the, they all are sort of routely described, I think, as anti-political violence. 
Um, we've seen recently, though, and by this I mean since 2017, and not just since 2017, um, forms of what Charles Taylor, the philosopher, refers to as categorical violence. Uh, violence against a group of people as that group of people, a group of people defined by a particular uh, stigma or by their belonging to a particular category. Uh, indiscriminate violence, yes, but indiscriminately applied to a particular category of people. And by that, of course, we're referring to the, to the Rohingya Muslim minority. Uh, violence that seemed to have a fair degree of uh, approbation among large portions of Myanmar's population. How do we... I'm, I'm trying to hold these two forms of... I realize the two forms of violence are different. Uh, categorical violence is justified in very specific ways, sometimes almost in metaphysical ways. These are... Um, by inflicting this violence, we are obeying, say, a higher law, a higher directive. We're honoring, we're sanctifying the identity of our nation. We're expelling the alien, the foreign element. Can we, I don't even know if these two things can be reconciled, but it seems incumbent upon us to try to think them together. Uh, is the form of revolutionary violence, a counter-military revolutionary violence you've been describing, could this signal, could this hold out the possibility of the renunciation, the diminishment of that form of categorical violence that's been engaged in previously? Or is the military's form of anti-political violence, does this, is this an omen of the resumption of precisely the form of violence that we saw stepped up quite considerably in 2017. Can you help me think through this? Good. That's a great question. Let, let me try and set up the answer to it just by saying a little bit about the circumstances of the Rohingya in relation to other groups, other linguistic and cultural groups in mm. the country. Mm. One of the specific difficulties that Myanmar encounters today is that the state is racialized. This is a consequence primarily of the period of British colonial rule in which linguistic and cultural categories which were in earlier times for the most part quite fluid, that people could move between categories, as it were, and even on the same day be belong to one category or another, these categories became fixed. So, so through the form of the census and other types of data generation, the production of knowledge for modes of colonial control, modes of control that were convenient for the colonizer, and categories that today a lot of scholars of Myanmar, Myanmar refer to as ethnic categories, became demarcated and rigid. And there is a taxonomy today of ostensibly ethnic categories in the country. 135 is the present total, but that taxonomy itself has been contested throughout history, and it's really only in the period of the last military dictatorship that it became something that featured in state military discourses. Um, the Rohingya are not included in those 135 categories. Mm. And consequently, they do rightly, as you point out, belong to 
they, uh, a location that they then are subject to, to categorical violence, that they are othered, that they are exposed to the kinds of violence which, to a greater or lesser extent, to be clear, other groups in the country have experienced for many decades as well, particularly in the frontier regions where civil war has gone on relentlessly since the independence of Myanmar, but that they have a special uh, situation in as much as they don't obtain the recognition that other um, categories of people do. So one of the conundrums um, with the, in the case of the Rohingya, um, in as far as they had a political program, was given that the state is racialized and the concern of Rohingya political leaders and activists was to become a part of the political community, to be recognized as equals, to be entitled to participate. How do you then do that? Well, that is through recognition as another category, right? So rather than mm. pushing against the taxonomy itself, mm. instead you try to find a place such that you are able to be incorporated into that taxonomy. And so what does the present moment open up then to go to your question? Uh, it's too early to say, but I think one of the characteristics of it, which again is genuinely novel, is that it does actually raise questions about the taxonomy of racial categories itself. That there is a willingness, um, um, at least among some political and revolutionary actors, first of all, to recognize the wrongness of theirs and others' positions in relation to Rohingya in the past. Um, the atrocities not only in 2017, but also in 2012, 2013, and 2014 that occurred uh, in Rakhine State and against Muslims in other parts of the country at that time. And then to say that whatever comes out of all of this, it has to be something profoundly different, a different kind of social and political order, or at least the beginnings of one from something that has come previous, from anything that's come previously. And that's true for both to military state order, but even to that order of the National League for Democracy, the kind of detente that was attempted under um, Do Aung San Suu Kyi. So I think that it really does open up the possibility of questions, at least of asking questions and of talking in a way that's never been asked or spoken about before as to the racialized character of the state in Myanmar, that racialized character being so inimical to conditions for uh, human freedom. So can you just flesh that out a bit for me, Nick? Like, Why would people make that particular leap? Like, Why, why would they get to the question of racialized categories rather than confine themselves to questions of the sort of total politics, the total domination of the military? Because in engaging in the new types of uh, political action and violence that we see in the present, there is the possibility for discussion and questions which are hitherto closed off, including in the period of the National League for Democracy government. The National League for Democracy government certainly did not want discussions around the character of this taxonomy. The point is that people in the current moment are asking questions about the fundaments of uh, the racialized order, um, the social and political order that they encounter in Myanmar. And I think that that opens up a way of thinking about this violence, um, which, again, may, may push it too far ahead of its current moment, but I think is, is something worth exploring as to whether or not it opens up the possibility of thinking about it as a kind of a, a second decolonial revolution, a second decolonization, in as much as Myanmar successfully was decolonized after the Second World War, but the task remains uh, to decolonize the political and social order, and that means attending to how these categories for the 
reification of racial identities have been so inimical to the organisation of the state. Can I just pick up Waleed's point, though? How do we get from, in as late as 2017, Hmm. if not popular approbation of this form of categorical violence, then at least uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's support or non-opposition to that violence not being a democratic deal-breaker. How do we get from that to a rethinking, a revolutionary, counter-colonial rethinking of racial categories as such? I mean, that that appeals to me, or what you say appeals to me. I'm just not... I don't understand how in less than five years we get from that to the other. Or to the, to the possibility of the other, I should say. Well, I think we have to talk about the possibility rather than getting there. And the point that I want to make is that state terror opens up that possibility. Because people in Myanmar who in towns and cities in the center of the country um, were unaware of what the military was capable of doing. Because it's many years since the military was involved in... Uh, large-scale terroristic violence in the cities, but they have become aware of it in ways that they were not previously, and they're forced into situations now that they're asking questions and thinking and talking in different ways. Where else does this revolutionary violence come from, right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing a type of action which we haven't, perhaps have not seen since um, independence, certainly not for many decades, and that's that people who, you're asking, how do we get from a few years ago, that situation up to now, let me put it this way. Uh, a matter of months ago, many of the people who are actively participating in the program of revolutionary violence today were themselves professionals in international non-governmental organizations, were working as doctors in hospitals, were, had other occupations, educational programs and plans that they associated with the gradual transformation of social, economic and political conditions in the country. They now find themselves in profoundly different circumstances. And what else can happen under those circumstances but they ask, but they, that they ask questions of this, these conditions in which they're, they're located? And we see astounding things. We have um, uh, movie actresses and actors who are hiding out in the mountains. We have uh, rock stars who are dying of malaria in the jungles, for instance. We have people who are returning from those locations to engage in programs of revolutionary violence to find other ways to keep the political struggle going. And they're doing it uh, from in, in a situation in which just a few months ago they would never have imagined that they, they themselves would be participating in activities of this sort. So is it, it, is it the is really idea, an astounding transformation. Is the idea then that their alienation, they're, they're sort of newly discovered, if you like, uh, certainly with this sort of intensity, alienation from the state allows them to analogise to others who've had a more systematic alienation from the state over a longer period of time. Is that the basic idea? Well, they have seen what the military can do, and some of them have stated outright that they are apologetic for the positions that they've taken in the past. Others are taking a position that whatever happens, as I said already, whatever comes out of this, it must be a different kind of uh, order from what has come previously, and that includes that order of the National League for Democracy, that kind of diarchic relationship that it had with the military, the kinds of compromises that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi was prepared to make. Now, whether or not um, they they succeed in any of these tasks is a 
remains to be seen. But my point is that these conditions provoke a different kind of thinking and talking to anything that we've seen in recent times. And I do see in that the potential for a different type of politics to anything that we've seen in recent years as well. Do you see at all a prospect of the military coming to some kind of accommodation, cutting several of its losses, but being able to, I don't know, manufacture some kind of arrangement by which they can return to the way things were pre-election? No. Hmm. So this becomes a transformative moment one way or the other? Yes. Wow. And what does it mean for someone, a figure like Aung San Suu Kyi, who has all kinds of complicity in her relationship with the military, but, you know, whose whose election victory um, being rejected is kind of the cause for this violence in the first place? How did the people of Myanmar come to see her now? She's idolised by a great many in the country, but I think among many of those who are engaged in the revolutionary actions, she was a figure who was deeply problematic as well, and that's why there's a live conversation now around what type of alternative political order might come out of this one, which doesn't look either like what the military had or the detente of the 2010s. As to the question of what happens to her, well, we shall see, but on all present expectations, there's no way back into political life for her because the military appreciates that there is no way that it can control the outcomes of her participation in politics, right? That's the whole point of the 2008 constitution was to try to contain and manage politics in ways that would make it amenable to the military and increasingly it found that uh, even a constitution of this sort in which it retained 25 or rather it had 25% of seats in the legislatures, in which it retained control over a number of key ministries, defence, home affairs, border affairs, and, and so on and so on. Even these arrangements were inadequate for its purposes. So it's hard to imagine that from that situation there is a way back to a condition that in any way resembles what has come before. But more to the point, I would say, from the standpoint of those who are engaged in this moment as a revolutionary moment, they also do not want to go back to that, if you will. Hmm. Nick, I think we can agree we've barely scratched the surface of your knowledge on this. Um, so thank you for lending us your expertise for so long. And uh, I mean, I we can, it was clearly invaluable for us. So um, we hope you were able to put up with us for the time. Uh, we probably should just have vacated and let you finish. But um, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. I enjoyed it. Thank you. That's uh, Nick Cheeseman, fellow in the Department of Political and Social Change at the Australian National University. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, uh, which is now at an end. We'll be back next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.